Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Javier Barnes, product manager at Tilting Point. Javier has an extensive background in gaming, having worked at Gameloft, Social Point and others. With Javier, we decided to make this episode uh, more of a discussion episode around the topics of game design in 2021. And it's a big interest of both of us. So I hope you're going to like this as well. We talk about playtesting, player motivations, user-oriented design, uh, the model of these small independent teams and more. You'll now hear the second part of my discussion with Javier Barnes, so check it out. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players, as GameEye is a platform-independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Hey game developer, are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An opera event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm loving what we're talking about here because like sort of like having actual players who are, you know, existing in the world and who loved the prototype, the best like approach that I've heard for, for creating a persona. And like, if I'm putting like my angel investor hat on quickly here to you know, say that I think a lot of investors at the early stage would also love, you know, early like founders who are doing game studios to have this approach when they're talking about the idea that uh, what you should be sort of sincere on this topic and not just add 
a persona into your deck, especially with these theoretical personas which may or may not exist. So when you have a target audience defined, you can definitely like start obsessively playing all the games that they're also you know loving. Uh, I think that drives a lot of insights that I've seen for like when the developers then start digging to more like what what this game should be as a bigger experience, uh, what creates stickiness, retains people, why they come back, and all the, the aspects that kind of satisfy their needs. So like, what are your thoughts outside of the, the rapid development and, and this kind of like soft early soft launch? What else can we do besides launching games quickly and seeing what works? Well, one thing um, that, that I believe... Or- one probably the point that I have failed at um, that I have failed the most is um, with this type of quick prototyping, and I'm not entirely sure if that's experience that other developers um, have experienced. I, I anticipate that yes, is um, so I've tried to do stuff by the book, right? Like first I do a marketing test and I certificate that the or I validate that the idea is attractive and has a very good CPI and and um, and stuff like that. So okay, the idea is viable. Which the CPI, I mean, testing that your CPI is going to be low, low low enough. I think that's kind of extremely. It's probably mandatory. Like if you have a game with a very high CPI. It's very, very going to be very difficult, especially if you're working on a new game. It's, it's, it's very difficult for you to compete. So I probably, even if the game idea is really good, if the CPI is really high, I would think on how I can move it down. Or maybe even if the idea is good, maybe that market, that specific market, maybe I, let's say match three, if I have a super good idea on match three that makes the game super fun and so on. But my CPI is super high because... Some other games have already solidified the audience on that on the on that genre. It's going to be very very difficult for me to compete. So CPI test, it's probably really um, unavoidable, sadly. Uh, but then I have failed at trying to bring that compartmentalization of validation method over different stages, um, like trying to. Validate day one, then move to validate day two, then move to tra- validate day three. And what I've noticed is um, that the more you move away from day one, it's really, really difficult to change the game um, by doing a specific actions. Like especially on day seven or day f- day fourteen, which are the moments where the depth of the game depth of the game starts to kick in. Your game has to be has to have deep enough and has to have the ability to keep being fun after the first impression, uh, it's very, very difficult to raise the values there without doing significant changes on the on the, um, on the the product. What I've seen there is that a lot of developers, me included, have, have gotten lost on that. If, if like you're doing this kind of small compartments of like trying to validate day one, then to validate day three and so on, you start to focus on improving a kind of a, a a KPI by, do, by doing actions that affect day seven, while probably you should take actions that affect the entire, the entire, um, the entire product because day day seven, day day thirty, and so on. Uh, the KPIs are the indicators of things that are profoundly in the game that actually define the game, not necessarily something that is happening on the previous day or something that is not happening on that specific day. Uh, so if, if, if your player 
is dropping by day seven, probably the solution is not to do something on day six, but rather to, to change something on the entire um, product. So something that I advise, this is in fact the, the methodology that I'm, I'm building, currently building at the moment is, okay, once you have validated or you're confident on the, on the very basic idea of the game, um, I think it's worth uh, trying to create kind of a clear product strategy and trying to understand well better uh, what are the, the, the needs of your product and what is the position that your product is going to occupy against its competitor and, and, and so on. I don't think this is that necessarily if you're doing hyper-casual, um, just because on hyper-casual, you don't necessarily need a lot of depth in the game. What you need is um, uh, that the game is extremely attractive and it's like plug and play and, and so on. But hyper-casual games do not tend to have like long-term, super good long-term retention. They're more like, um, or the, the key to their success is being, a, being able to obtain uh, a high amount of organic downloads and being very attractive to be, to be um, uh, download it. Um, but when it comes to like, when it comes to, um, bigger products and like more complex products, I think it's worth, um, understanding, um, what is the, your portfolio, your portfolio strategy. So even if you kind of have to do massive changes or massive pivots in your, in your product, what is going to be the, the product that, uh, you're going to build next and what is mm -hmm. going to be the, 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 the things that you're not going to pivot or the things that you're going to make sure that um, that get translated. For example, um, if I'm, if, I, if as a company, I take the decision of building a match three and I fail at building match three and I kind of, I, I have to pivot so much the product or that is essentially doing a new product, probably the next product that I start should be a match three or should be something where I can use the expertise that I have obtained for from my um, from my uh, previous previous product I mean what would be silly is that I build a match three game I fail and then what I do next is uh, I don't know first person shooter something that actually requires me a completely different um, range of expertise a completely different staff even um, I, I need uh, you know a 3d when I was working before in a 2d game and, and so on it, and psychologically, moving away a lot from the place that you failed is, is kind of the more rewarding, right? Like if you fail at match three, um, psychology, like your brain is going to tell you move away from that as much as you can, uh, try to go yeah. for a, for, um, for a first person shooter, for example. But this is in fact, because of Dunning Kruger effect, because after failing at match three, you probably are more aware of why you failed and, and um, of how difficult it is to do something that you thought it was very easy at the beginning, or it was easier than what it really is. And now you're having the same sensation with a first-person shooter. You're now thinking that doing a first-person shooter is something easier. Uh, mm -hmm. But once you get into that, you're, you're gonna start to see that it's really, really difficult to that it's really it's really difficult to actually create a first-person shooter that it's on the level to be able to compete with folks that have been doing first person shooter for like five years or more. So, yeah. so I think that having this kind of, uh, as a company or as a team, this kind of product strategy or this kind of portfolio strategy that goes beyond the, um, the product that you are currently working, it's, it's actually kind of important, uh, especially to guarantee that, uh, those, that iterative model is going to 
contribute to your end, end success. Um, like Supercell, they, they talk a lot about, about failing, but um, I think something that is very, very important is, or something that, that, Maybe they don't explicit enough, but they, that it's part of the model is that it's not failing for the sake of failing, and it's not failing fast for the sake of failing fast, because that would be that that would be silly. It's about you need to fail in order to gather knowledge so that you don't fail the next time. But the objective, mm -hmm. the ultimate objective is not failing. The ultimate failing, the ultimate objective is to be successful. But in order to be successful. Uh, you need to make that your failures contri contribute at building expertise. Uh, what I've seen a lot in a lot of companies that they have tried to build the same kind of supercell model without actually being successful at it is one of the reasons is because they they kind of they're looking for a good idea um, and not for a good process of building knowledge. Yeah, man, that's that's so true. Yeah, I totally agree with having a focus there. Like when you have one genre that you're going after, you can enjoy the benefits of talking about the same target audience, especially after the project. Like what what went wrong with our sort of like our approach of entertaining this target user, this player? Uh, you can have continue having that conversation and and sort of. I really want to emphasize to, to people that then. Like if you bring the user or the end player into to the front and center of what you're doing and thinking, it's sort of you're not you're not ending in a situation where you didn't really know what happened. You can always discuss the end end user's experiences there. Yeah, I mean, I've been a sports coach for more than five years, and one thing that I've seen is um, like a lot of a lot of the uh, people that I train. Um, they they kind of they, they want success and they see themselves as being like super successful and being the best at at the sport my sport in particular is pro wrestling so it's kind of weird um and then they, they want to you know reach wwe and be like super famous and some stuff and then when they fail at that when they try to do something and they fail they kind of get that as a confirmation that their dreams are not going to happen and that they they should move away they should go to another sport and what i the thing that I have observed on the folks that actually continue and, and make it good is that, sure, they want to be good at it, but they don't, whenever they fail or whenever they find a challenge, they find something like a technique or, or something that they they find difficult to, to do. They don't, they don't get desperate. They don't take that as a confirmation that, oh, I should change my sport. I'm not good at this or whatever. They, they take it as a, as a challenge, as something that they, they need to master. And in fact, when they overcome that challenge, they feel better. So actually that kind of creates like two different models. One is that every challenge, on the first case, every challenge makes, makes them weaker, makes them less confident. And the other is like the successful case, every challenge makes them more powerful, more confident. They, they feel better and, and so on. And uh, I think that, Again, that, that happens a lot with games. Uh, if you fail once at doing something, uh, you probably may think like, okay, we're not good at doing whatever, so let's move for something different. But in reality, you're probably, at that moment, you're probably better suited than, it, than, than before at, um, at succeeding at that challenge because now you know why you fail. Now you know uh, what kind of things you can, you, you should try um you should try different. So at the end of the day, I think it's a it's work of of resilience. Um, but also you need to be. I also think that you need to be smart and you need to know 
which areas are probably not worth the investment. Uh, mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. sure, there are some so there are some some areas where you fail, and no matter how much times you try, you're never gonna get. That. I mean, that's not gonna happen. Just like we said with the four X infinite runner. So no mm -hmm. matter how you fail, how many times how many times you fail. Even if you get really good at doing 4x infinite runner, that's never going to be successful. Um, yeah. But the range of things that we fail and, and that could be successful is way, way bigger than we can imagine. Definitely. Hey, then let's cover some topics around cross-platform, like having games that run both on PC and mobile. Like, why are developers pushing this cross-platform play? Is that the solution for, you know, when you're saying that mobile is so hard because of the high CPIs? for all the successful platform cross-platform games there could have all been done as one platform first and then spawned into other platforms after they have a success with the, the game on one platform so i think my five cents here would be that for a game studio to start with a cross-platform strategy of you know from day one building a cross-platform game you need, first of all, you need a lot of capital to execute both PC and mobile at the same time, because you're going to be dealing with all sorts of things regarding game distribution, but also the UX and controls will, you know, have to be solid and good on both platforms and all the other technical challenges that come up there. And then the second thing is like, where is your audience actually playing at the moment? And are, are there, are there, like enough paying audience in a cross-platform so universe. What are, what are your thoughts on the cross-platform thing? So like for the small and even mid-sized companies, what I would recommend is <laughs> do not, I mean, select which platforms are you going to, to release on. And then once you are successful on those platforms, that then expand to other platforms. Like you said, it's really it's really difficult to um, release on multiple platforms at the same time, and probably it's a very good way to fail. It's very, it's a it's a good way to um, um, grow thin and 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 try to do too much and actually not release or or spend all your money and stuff like that. So my advice would be, if you're doing a game that is mobile first. Just do it on mobile. Do it on on uh, on uh, iOS and Android, and then move to Windows 10, and then move to um, you know PC or try to move to other platforms once you have been successful on the first one. In fact, um, this is actually the other way around. It also works. I mean, we have seen that Fortnite was dominating on the PC space before they ever. Uh, thought on going to mobile and probably they went into mobile because they saw that PUBG was moving to mobile as well and was being very successful, right? So they said like, okay, we cannot let our competition take all that cake. Um, so my advice would be if you're a small or mid company, focus on a specific set of a specific platform and then expand from, from there. Otherwise you're going to be wasting a lot of your resources. Um, that's it. <laughs> I think that um, one of the things, this is my prediction, um, one of the things that's going to happen uh, in the future is that the barrier between mobile and and uh, PC and console is going to get diluted more and more. Um, this is actually something that we, it's a process that we, we have seen. Uh, I've been in 10 years in the mobile industry. When I started, the mobile games were Java and uh, the, the 
couldn't be anything in the mobile in the games space more separated from PC and and console. And now we even have some games, some major games that are like in both places, like Fortnite or or PUBG and and so on, or even uh, League of Legends, um, that are kind of expanding and that are taking down that barrier. That barrier is going to exist for quite a while, for sure. But I think that in the future, we're going to see um, uh, a world where the, especially for big titles and big, very well-established titles uh, and very big companies, the difference between PC and mobile, it's it's really like really thin. Like the same products are going to innovate on the different on the different platforms. For me, the biggest doubt is if it's gonna be the same exact product or if it's gonna be more like what they're doing with, uh, I don't know, Blizzard is doing with Diablo, for example. If it's gonna be like the mobile version of, uh, which is the same thing that Call of Duty has, like Call of Duty, they, you have the console thing and it's its own thing. And then they have Call of Duty Mobile, which is a something that kind of provides you the same experience in a way, like in terms of it's a shooter, but, but it, um the meta is completely different and it's really really it's an, another thing um mm. because there are some characteristics that i see very difficult that very difficult to port from pc to to mobile and the other way around no stuff related to the monetization aggressiveness that you should have on pc it's completely different than the monetization that you need to have in mobile um because of the cpis uh, the session length, for example, like in PC, uh, a, a game that takes you mat that requires you matches of 15 minutes is super short, but on, on mobile is super long. So it's difficult to find a middle ground there. Uh, so for me, my doubt is, is if, if if big developers are going to kind of create their own differentiated product within the same premise, or if it's going to be the same exact thing like in Fortnite. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that in the future, we will see that barrier going down. And uh, of course, that barrier going down will mean more tools and will make more possible that developers that right now are exclusively working on, on are exclusively working on mobile move to also other platforms that we are not used to see them. For example, we haven't seen any Supercell game on PC yet, unless you have Bluestacks. Uh, but... Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the future they they do move to those platforms. I could totally see them uh, releasing product there or at least expanding the current products that they have to be playable on PC. Yeah, it could. I don't really have anything to add here, but I, I wanted to move on to the to kind of like another topic, which is uh, talking about the, the older games that have been live for several years now, especially on mobile. There's a lot of top gro grossing ones that just don't seem to go away. And I believe it it is sort of like the staying power comes from people not looking for, like not everybody's looking, looking for the next game to play, uh, sort of like what is the next Among Us game or the next AAA shooter to play. And I think it is great to see some of these older games staying on the charts for for almost 10 years because it also helps thinking about like doing a new game studio building a new game that the games do have you know a long life ahead of them so it's not something you ship and then you forget like do you have thoughts to share on these kind of like strong legacy games um yeah i do think that actually like these strong legacy games 
are going to become the norm. I mean, the life, one thing that we can be sure right now is that the life cycle of mobile games, it's longer than we anticipated them to be. To be honest, I think it's because like their regeneration, it's it's huge. I mean, uh, no game that has been there for a very, very long time has remained the same. It's not the same thing that you had in the first day. So uh, like um, they are constantly changing. If you play, even if you start playing a Clash Royale right now, it's a very different experience. It's a different, uh, yeah, sure. Like the basics of the system are the same, but uh, you have much more room for expansion and and um, much more um, different types of cards and, and so on. And even stuff related to the early game with the new battle pass kind of thingy, it has changed a lot. Like, yeah. like if you start playing right now, it's a different story. Yeah. Um, so I think they, this, um, this kind of long legacy thing is going to become the norm and they have become the norm because those games have become very effective at, at attracting attracting players. And if I have to judge what has happened with PC, like, and I'm specifically looking at World of Warcraft, there's even another uh, stage of product that I think it hasn't been reached on PC, which is the eternal re-engagement um, uh, stage, which I think, for example, games like Clash Royale actually is on that stage or is reaching that stage, which is the fact that uh, in, in World of Warcraft, like right now how it works is for sure, you have people that has never left and is there from the first day. But now how it goes is that they release maybe like two expansions uh, per year. Like from time to time, they release like this very big expansion. And then everybody else that were already played World of Warcraft in the past, they come back and they play for one month and then they leave until the next uh, expansion. You can see that with the different expansions, the amount of content that they have. It's very related to, okay, come here, build fast. I mean, build um, what you need to co to consume this new content fast. And then after one month, it reaches, an, like you basically have completed uh, most of the, you have already seen the expansion. Uh, so what they have achieved is a model where in World of Warcraft, where um, it calls you back. It's a game that it's very demanding on time, even if with the, the latest changes have made it more sustainable compared to uh, classic WoW, which I played <laughs> when when the craze came and like it's manageable. Like I can I do have a life. And even even with modern World of Warcraft, I do have a life. I cannot be playing World of Warcraft for, for a long time. But I can come back every six months and then for one month of on, on that year, like it, experience again with was playing uh, World of Warcraft. So I think the current strategy they have is this kind of re-engagement thing, trying to call back the, the players. And it's been successful. Like their last expansion, like bring like insane amount of, of people to World of Warcraft. And I think that's something that uh, it's going to happen on strong legacy games before they die. Um, mm. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if, if it starts happening in Clash Royale at some point. Um, the fact that they start releasing, like, uh, start creating their behavior on their players, where they release a feature, then people comes back, sees the sees the feature, sees the the expansion, play for a while, and then they leave, and then they will come back uh, in the future. Um, so I think there is a still a long a long uh, uh, term for uh, or a, a long life left for for uh, mobile games. 
Um, now, when it comes to maintaining those games alive, uh, I think like most of my experience in my career has been with, uh, or at least half of it, uh, has been with uh, live games. And I think one, one important thing is that whatever you create your game, uh, whatever you create content for, for a live game that has been running for a long time, um, you need to stay true to the audience of, of that game. I think that the long live games that have failed or that they have suffered is primarily because of two reasons. One is not moving enough, so like kind of stagnate, basically. Uh, or maybe they just, change, they just do changes that uh, only keep the game alive, but they don't keep the, they, they don't make it interesting again for players that have been there for a long time. So not moving enough, uh, or moving in directions that the players did not enjoy. I think that mm -hmm. the, the the best uh, the best way to run a legacy game uh, is to really understand what is the audience, who is the audience, what is the stuff that they care of, uh, both the players that have been playing for a long time, but also the players that are coming in, what do they expect from the game, and then make sure that the changes that you do are aligned with what the community is expecting and with the community uh, is willing to, I mean, will enjoy, basically. Yeah, good point. Yeah, like, I, uh, like thinking about just like my experience is developing mobile games is usually the challenge is that you you, you always have this technical debt coming, uh, especially when you ship a game very quickly, it's hurried uh, into soft launch and you can't really like stop there. You need to progress because you have a certain budget and runway to ship the game. And as these games become these kind of live big games, uh, the, the code debt that sort of like creeps in, uh, I've seen it make new features and additions into these games very troubling for, for developers later on. I don't know if you have thoughts on, on technical debt. Yeah, I mean, I do think that technical debt management is probably the ultimate test for a game manager, um, just because it is something that like uh, some other actions, like if you put a daily login system or you put a new feature on monetization and stuff like that, that's going to move KPIs. And you're going to very easily certify that the KPIs are moving up. Uh, but when it comes to technical debt is that paying it <laughs> um, will generate results which don't necessarily are not going to be necessarily trackable through KPIs, especially in the short term. So. If you invest on on solving technical debt, reducing loading times, and like reducing crashes that are not extremely critical, and so on, uh, you're not gonna you very unless unless there were like critical problems, you're not gonna see like an increment on retention. Mm, uh, yeah. So for a lot of uh, game managers, I can understand that it's it's kind of sounds like a very bad trade off, right? Because sometimes they require a lot of um, they require a lot of uh, developer developer effort. So you have to put your developers to work on solving technical depth and improving technically the game for a long time. For something that you, while they're doing that, you're paying a cost of opportunity. You're not putting them to work on stuff that actually would increase your um, KPIs and would reach your you know quarter goals and stuff like that. Um, but I think that it, it, it is important to know that uh, at the end of the day, um, technical debt is something that you need to fix. Like if your game is slowing, it has uh, lag and it has um, 
tech, a lot of technical problems that accumulate many bugs and so on. That's going to under, undermine the confidence of the consumer in your product. So they're going to be less willing to spend because everything is buggy or the game is they doesn't work too well. And, uh, you know, your game crashing and so on, obviously, it's going to affect neg negatively the player experience. So you need to um, you need to invest in that. I think good advice or the best advice for me is that you need to advise on to invest on that. But I think it's a bad idea to overinvest on technical debt because, say, imagine you take the decision, okay, let's stop the entire machine and we're not we stop working at releasing new features and now everybody's gonna start. I put all my developers for three months. Uh, improving the technical capacity of the game and like the graphics or whatever, the engine, everything. And then we come back to normal. That's not going to work. <laughs> this technic technical debt is this kind of thing where uh, you never stop paying your technical debt. Uh, you never um, you never solve all the bugs. You never solve all the crashes. Just stuff keeps on happening. Um, and in my opinion, is is. For me, that's that's is if I wanted to be fit, and my plan is like, okay, I'm gonna go to the gym for three months every morning and every afternoon, and I'm gonna spend eight hours in the gym every single day for three months, and then I don't ever step back in the gym. That's not gonna work. What's gonna work for me to get fit is okay. I have to go maybe like four hours per week or three hours per week every single week for a long time. And meanwhile, I sustain my own life. I, I, I keep on living, and I think that's the same approach that that works for technical dev, like try to put programs in place where uh, you're constantly investing on paying up your debt, but you're not, in order to do that, you're not sacrificing the creation of new content or, or of stuff that is gonna make you achieve your goals. So for example, stuff that I've been, that I've seen uh, doing that, that has worked is for example, uh, taking one day of the week and making that one day of the week is the day where you where developers or the entire team works on technical on technical projects. So you're still have four you still have four days that you're working on new stuff and stuff that the stuff that you can see, but then you have one day per week that where you are working on on the stuff that players cannot see but that they feel. And I think that this is also a good way to make to be to be able to introduce quality of life features, not only technical debt, but also I don't know, uh an auto collect button or uh, this thing that players are asking like hey you know managing my inventory is super hard if we had this button that or this thing that orders the inventory this way this kind of quality of life things that of course if you're if you're adding stuff on your updates based on impact this is never going to happen uh, you're going to you're going to focus on stuff that keep players engage and you're going to keep on focus on stuff that keep players monetized but then then don't be surprised <laughs> if you never put quality of life features don't be surprised if your if your audience uh, says you're greedy because you're only from their point of view they're you're only adding uh, features to make money out of them uh, or to keep them uh, playing the game uh, but not stuff that improves their enjoyment of the core experience uh, and it's not bringing the game money or or, or retention. Um, again, I think that the best the best solution is to find a model where you can uh, invest on technical 
invest on, on technical debt and invest on quality of life while at the same time you are providing players with a new and engaging experience and, and you're meeting and you're meeting your goals yeah man that's very interesting i, I think all those ideas like i've seen them happen and it, it is some something that doesn't get talked about in the industry like because it, it isn't like flashy things that you will see but it is more about the things you can feel in the game yeah but like i said uh, it's uh, I also think that it's as bad to not pay your technical debt as, as, as not be aware of when technical debt is useful. Technical mm -hmm. debt, it's a tool and it's, it's, also, it's also useful. I think it's also a bad idea to completely reject uh, technical debt and just think like, okay, no, whatever, whatever we release is going to have like five stars of quality and it's going to be like completely super polished and so on, which is a, it sounds nice, but in reality, it's not serving it's not serving the audience well because that's going to make you so slow that you're actually not going to be able to satisfy your customers. Uh, so I, I think it's worth to also be aware on the fact that okay, sometimes it's it's worth rushing stuff. It's worth releasing something at three stars rather than five, as long mm -hmm. as it's going to be five stars at the end of the at the end of the day. Just because if not. Sure, I'm satisfying the customers in the sense that I'm, I'm releasing something that is that is perfect, but I'm not satisfying the customers in the sense that I'm providing them with stuff that takes so much time that they are actually getting bored and they, they, they would like to have it faster. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Uh, think about like the, the last topic that we, we were deciding to cover here, which is supercell culture model and... Uh, Kind of like the issues with those that supercell model of independent small team for companies that aren't supercell like i personally think that there's a lot of good in that model but sort of like some key elements that don't get implemented correctly and i think those are the first off you have these the properties and the attributes that go into this like finding a, a vision holder in that team a torchbearer, this kind of like person who's at the front, who can pull everything and everybody together is still needed, even though it's a team that's always talked about. And, and the velocity there that the team needs to realize that the speed that they want to work at when building kind of games. So I, I think like if you have somebody who's not, you know, at that same speed in that team, usually the weakest link set that pace. Uh, and then, then thinking about this kind of approach of, uh, top-down versus bottoms-up product strategy where you're thinking about like what is the product products that we focus on like there's there's definitely like exceptions when you have a a studio that has been doing racing games forever or like supercell has been doing this pvp competitive games for like that's where they they made the money like or or think about the hyper casual studio where you join the studio in the first place with some kind of like pre-existing knowledge that you'd want to do uh you wouldn't want to do racing games or you wouldn't want to do hyper casual but you're still like joining and uh you're being hired into the company without like sort of like top down uh sort of like stating that this is what we're going to be anyways making. Uh, and I, I think it's fine to have a kind of like a sandbox there for the team, but it needs to be kind of clear in the company mission. If you're defining already like what kind of games you're making, intention or not. And I think the problem starts when you have a top-down order, like we need to do merge games like or something, or that, hey, <clears throat> we, we now need to ship 
game x clone which is like hot in the market i think that won't work uh it sets the level of kind of like this natural and healthy curiosity if, from the if you intentionally sort of like not too much just top down ordering uh, and then have it more like bottoms up approach so like with the top down orders definitely will create certain kind of games so you get into this mindset of not maybe not like having the teams decide everything but it's fine if you've sort of defined and hired people for that model like what do you think about the the supercell model so it works <laughs> it, i mean th- it works for them um and that's that's clear nobody i, I think Anybody in this industry or nobody in this industry can can say that the supercell model doesn't work for supercell or that supercells would do it better if they switched the model. Although I would say that as a class royale fan, I think that they could stretch a little bit the model in order to provide more interesting um, content. But um, the supercell model works, um, and I don't have any problem with that. The problem that I have is. I've seen a lot of companies, um, especially in the last seven months, where I've been with, without a real job, and I was like, I, I got into, I was working as a consultant, so I was, I was into contact with many, many companies, um, and I found a lot of companies that they have idolized uh, Supercell to, to to the point that they want to make money with the same with the same uh, exact model. And um, so one thing is, whenever I've read the uh, Supercell CEO write stuff. He always had said, he usually explains about the model because uh, of course the, the mo- he's the guy that, that run the model, right? But he always says like, uh, but, but don't take this as a strict rules. Uh, just, you know what I mean? Like adapt that um, the way you need it. And um, I think that a lot of companies don't do that. They what they do is they they reject themselves, they reject their strengths and their weakness. And they don't do the effort of understanding what are and identifying what what are their own strengths and how can they use them in order to be successful. And instead, they they act as if they had the same weaknesses and the same strengths that Supercell has. So they copy the model one one. And I also find kind of interesting, like whenever I. As I've been, I've, I've talked with a lot of companies and some of them, I remember one of them, in fact, that told me like, okay, our CEO spoke with uh, the Supercell CEO and they were discussing, trying understanding super in-depth the uh, model that they have and so on. And we're doing it exactly as he told us, exactly as he described it to us. And I found very interesting because whenever I found those situations, they always copy the same stuff. But there's some other stuff that is essential part of the supercell model that they don't copy. And uh, pr- primarily the, the philosophical stuff, like the stuff that I've seen replicated in a, into a lot of companies is, okay, team size, uh, bottoms up structure, um, kind of model of ideation where the team kind of uh, builds quick iteration and they have the ability to shoot down the, the to shoot down the, the prototype whenever they want and so on. They have a lot of autonomy, which is cool. But I've read a lot about the uh, Supercell CEO writing about user-friendly monetization tactics and how, in fact, if we take a look at how Supercell has acted over time, sometimes they have rejected good ideas that they had applied successfully because 
I guess, no other reason than the fact that they they thought that they were not user-friendly enough. One case, for example, is browsers in Clash Royale. In Clash Royale, they invented the time the time chests, and they had a very good monetization model um, based on based on time, based on okay, you you play, then you collect these chests. The chests take time, and and so on. So it was very pay for time skip kind of model. But then you take browsers, and they don't have any of that. And I think one of the key reasons, uh, especially looking at some some of the design changes on the meta of the game, I think one of the reasons is that in browsers they have tried to move away from a negative per, from a model, monetization model based on time skip that generated a, a negative perception of of players and on, on players in in uh, browsers is not about okay we have added these caps and with a time gate and you pay to skip the time gate in brawl stars kind of the paradigm that i see on the monetization is no you pay for more you pay for double credits you pay for more boxes which will increase your your uh, the amount of content that you get so it's increased the, at the end of the day it's still time because you are paying to skip uh, to to improve your progression which mm. and which is going has a translation to time but uh, in Brawl Stars, it's about I pay to accelerate my progression. In Clash Royale, everything is about no, you pay to uh, uh, um, disable the, the the gatings that we have put in your in your translation of time of mm -hmm. uh, time into into progression, and that kind of thing never gets um, never gets copied. Um, so I, I think that what happens with with or the mistake that I see repeated over and over with trying to apply the supercell model is the fact that uh, the companies they try to copy it one one instead of trying to adapt it to who they are. And I think that um, or the advice that I would take for companies that want to apply this model is uh, it requires a lot of introspection. It requires a lot of understanding what are the strengths on your on your uh, company. Um, there's this song from Ice-T called OG, Original Gangster, uh, where he explained, this is, it's super famous rapper. I'm, I'm sure everybody knows about him. But he started, he, he, that song uh, talks about how he started rapping about the same topics that every other successful rapper talked about the time, about parties and about chicks and stuff. And then that, that, that wasn't working. He was just one one more rapper and not he, he wasn't doing good. And then, he realized that uh, he was—he just wasn't a party guy. That he, uh, he, so he started writing about the things that made him unique. The fact that he grew in a place that uh, was filled with gang violence, and add a lot—he started adding a lot of social commentary to his music. He started creating controversy with that, and, and so on. And that, uh, but when he did that, that intros, introspection, uh, ex, that exercise of introspection. Uh, he he was able to become more unique and he was able to become more successful he was able to understand how the things that made him unique were the keys to how could he use that in order to become successful and i think that that is an exercise that every company has to do in order to to do good you you first have to understand on which things which areas you are you are good and by copying one one a model or that was made for somebody that had a different that set of skill set and different characteristics you're in a way renouncing or you're rejecting your own uh your own strengths mm. yeah totally agree with that i think like like 
observing a lot of founders recently going through kind of like that that process of figuring out their model i think like the the thing should be that you should first understand kind of like how do you behave and is that like something you want to kind of like build as a as a as a seed for the culture and the ways that you work and then start from there because uh, I, I think it's always good to do that introspection versus like copying a supercell model might not fit for you anyway yeah i think w- one of the things that that i've loved about um about the podcast that that i've i've, I've listened about your podcast is the fact that you put a lot of emphasis on the fact that uh, companies are not building whenever they are looking for investors they're not selling a product they're selling themselves they're selling what they need to sell is their culture what they need to sell is their their um their team their ability their 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 quest kind of their they, they investors invest in companies um based on on uh, on the trust on the company on on, on what the, not on a specific pro, not on a specific product because the product can fail and in fact chances are the product will fail um but the money is not on the product. The money is on if uh, that company, even if that specific product fails, they can become successful on the long term. Um, but they cannot be become successful again if if they are oblivious to their own to their own um, their own abilities. Um, in in Spain, we we love soccer, and um, we have these super big clubs like Real Madrid and Barca and which are two of the best soccer clubs in the world and we have seen actually smaller teams wins in in spanish league smaller teams win against them um and the reason why they win is that they, they don't play their their same game it's like if you're gonna box against floyd mayweather don't make it a boxing match if you're gonna mm-hmm. compete against floyd mayweather don't make it a, a boxing match play tekken you're probably gonna beat him um and I, I, I think I think that that applies that applies as well. I also yeah. think that it's important to know that the supercell model has some has some requirements or or some limitations. And um, um, depending on what you're working, what your company is, if you try to apply that model, you need to be aware of what are the limitations or what are the requirements um, of of the model in order to make it work. Um, I think that the biggest requirement in that regard is is people. Uh, Supercell has some of the best professionals in the industry, and uh, the sad truth is that not not every every single every other company has workers of of that of that level. Uh, just the same, like every, it's now it's not a drama. Not every single soccer club, ha, uh, not every single uh, soccer player in the world is uh, messy. But still, they can win matches. Um, so, for example, when it comes to, to um, team size, um, what I have seen based on my limited interaction with Supercell is, for example, uh, a lot of their designers they do have a very strong technical background. Like yeah. almost all of the designers that I've seen that I've met from Supercell, they know how to code. And if your designers do not have to code, well, you're probably going to need more dis- more uh, more developers to uh, compensate um, from that. And and the same happens with developers and artists. Developers and artists, as far as I know, I don't know that many from Supercell, but um, as far as the story goes, they are very good at doing design. And in fact, from some videos that I've seen on GDC, they, they, those guys, they know how to design, even if they are not designers on their contract 
Um, but if your developers and your artists do not know how to design, it would be a very bad idea just because now you're in the supercell model or you want to run the supercell model to assume that they know how to do proper design. You will probably have to invest in order to teach them how to design or maybe if if they really don't want to design and so on, you probably have to adapt the, the model. You can, I, I, I think it's not a good idea to just, you know, blind go blindfully and say like okay now you are like like the people that is on supercell you need to be aware of what is the people that you have mm, yeah that's ex excellent point. hey i i want to ask you some final questions before we wrap up this discussion um this is some questions that i always ask so what is your favorite book and why <laughs> okay uh so my favorite book is dune frank frank Serbert, uh dune um I'm sure like 99% of the folks that listen to your podcast know about it. Um, but it's a sci-fi sci -fi novel and it's really, really super cool. It's pretty old as well. And it, I think it, it set up a lot of the premises of um, future uh, science fiction. So even if it, it has everything, it has like so neo-feudal feudal society and everything like that. But for me, it's super interesting now bringing it to games on the fact that I feel that Dune and, and the entire saga, um, it's more an exercise about building societies and kind of building systems and so on, because the, the, the series puts a lot of focus on, on, on how, this, how that world, how that, that society works. And not only on that, but rather on how the actions that they are doing are going to affect the society of the future, like in 1,000 years time and so on. Um, and I, I feel that that is actually kind of similar to what you are when you're building systems. When you're building systems, you're taking decisions, and and uh, you need to anticipate how the decisions that you're making, how the uh, um, desires that you're creating on your players, the shortcomings on a specific resource and stuff like that, is going to create behaviors uh, that are going to affect the game later on. And for me, that's that's uh, yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite book. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work? To oh, I well, I do have many stories. Um, as you probably have seen, I lo I love to talk. But um, I'd say probably one one of the one story. Maybe it's 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 not good, but well, one story is um, one thing that that probably made me was the the thing that made me improve the the most in my career was. Um, just when I arrived at um, uh, Game of Montreal, so I was super young. I was like 20-something, like really, really young guy. And I had this major, like I was the game economy director of a super big studio uh, with hundreds of workers and so on. So it was like, um, and I, I knew a lot of it about free to play and the company and specifically the studio was transitioning from doing premium games uh, to, um, to to free to play games. They were releasing their first free to play games and so on. They were transitioning uh, franchises such as Asphalt and uh, Dungeon Hunter, Gangster and so on to, to the free to play model. And um, so I, I remember uh, I was interacting with regularly with with uh, you know professionals that maybe had like four times the amount of years my years of experience in the games industry that some of which came from Mass Effect and like super big titles 
And uh, I remember just when I came there, right, just because my job was about teaching them how to do free to play, I was uh, giving them feedback and telling them kind of how to do their work, right? Like, um, you know, I had this guy, he would came, he was one of a designer in Mass Effect, and I was telling him how he should do the systems in a, in a free to play game and so on. And um, he didn't appreciate it too much. Um, just because, you know, there's this thing with age and, and so on. And of course, this guy was super experienced. He had much more experience than me. And um, so I wasn't being successful at evangelizing. I was being successful and telling them what to do, but not not good at, at evangelizing. And that wasn't good because in the long term, it was unsustainable because maybe, sure, if, if, if they give me the system and, and I trick the system in order to make it more effective for free to play, well, that's cool. The get jobs done. The job gets done, but it doesn't. It doesn't teach the guy. It doesn't make him effective at not needing me next time. And um, so I had this uh, co-worker of mine that was was uh, talking to me, and I was kind of frustrated because I felt like, sure, that my feedback was being applied, but my message was not was not sent. I wasn't evangelizing, right? And I have this guy um, uh, Tiago. Uh, Tiago Tex, you can find him on LinkedIn. I interact with him pretty often on LinkedIn publicly. And um, he told me, look, you're doing something wrong. Again, he was much more experienced than me. I was just like 22 or something. And he told me, look, you're doing something wrong. Is You're not thinking about how the, uh, what you're saying is making, feel the, is making the audience feel. If you, are, you want, if you want your message to stick and not be just orders, but rather be something that they internalize and they are able to apply, it's not about what you say. Everything is about how, how you make them feel when you say it, because they will forget they will forget whatever you say, but they will never forget how they felt when you said it. So that made me realize, okay, it's not about the content of the message. Like 90% is not about the content of the message. 90% it's about the method of the message. How effective is the, method, the message uh, to, 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 to internalize? How, how, the, how the message, is the message going to create a defensive reaction from the audience? Because that way you're not gonna, that message is never gonna stick. If, if it creates, if, if it feels like it's an aggression of, or, or it triggers ad, 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 the defense mechanisms on whoever is listening. What I, what I want is that they, they take that as a seed and that seed kind of grows inside them. And then um, that allows them to, to kind of reach the solution by themselves mm. and kind of internalize yeah. the, internalize the uh, message. So I started, it kind of switched my uh, first approach, which was based on check light, uh, uh, guidelines and, and checklists and stuff like that. Like your game has to have this and this and this. Your game has to make sure, you know, if you do this, it has to do this, that, like stop checklists, stop stuff like that. And I started working more on a message that was about making them understand why, why free to play works, why free to play is not the fable of the month, why, uh, why, people monetizes, why uh, somebody would pay for something that otherwise is given for free and, and, and stuff like that and try to find common grounds. Okay, those folks, they come from console. Yeah. Uh, so I need to put examples that are based on console games. And I need to put, and I need to frame the message that I want to explain to them on the examples that they know. So how, what kind of things 
would people pay in Mass Effect if they were playing Mass Effect? Why it would work? Analyzing, in fact, the the the, the actual the systems of Mass Effect, for example, and and so on. And uh, I felt that made me way way more effective. And in fact, when for a while in GameLoft, I did this this kind of work of going through different studios, kind of evangelizing them on how to do free-to-play. Um, I was in, in, in China, I was in, in, um, in Bucharest a couple of times as well, and I felt my message became way, way more effective when I realized that the whole thing, like on the message, the most important stuff is uh, how, is, is how the, the, the audience takes the, the content, not necessarily the content uh, itself. I think that has also implications for design. Uh, yeah. When you do game design, it's not about the content; it's about the audience takes the content. Um, and uh, when when working with other developers, I think that's super super uh, important. If you want to evangelize your team into a different paradigm of working, be it uh, the Supercell model or any other, um, my advice is you you need to be aware that you're talking with people. Uh, so forget about strict orders, forget about stuff like that. And it, it's way, way more, people is way more effective at following rules if they do understand the, the reasons why those rules exist and what good provides to their team or to their game to follow those rules. So that's much more effective than focus on, uh, on um, a strict implementation of those rules. Yeah, makes total sense. Hey, final question for you, Javier. If people want to chat with you about game creation, game-related stuff, what's the best way to be in contact with you? Um, the best way it's probably to reach me my, through uh, LinkedIn. I I have the the habit of never say no whenever sends me a contact uh, invitation in LinkedIn. So send over send over your reach me on linkedin that's the best way i mean you can write on my blog and and stuff like that and i will read it for sure but um if you, if you contact me on on linkedin that's the best way um and I'm, i usually answer quite fast and everything so yeah. that's probably the best good stuff thanks javier this was great uh hope you have a good rest of the the day there in barcelona and uh we see, see you soon again same thing uh, it was a pleasure for me to be to be here and uh, I'll be glad if you ever want to call me again. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that, man. All right, take care. All right, bye. Thanks again, Javier, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please do hit or follow on your favorite podcasting app to get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, we have a weekly newsletter going out every Friday with a lot of stuff that I'm sharing from my own experiences, what I'm working on right now. Uh, check that out by going to EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. And I'm doing this new thing for the podcast called the Ask Me Everything. So we have the link distributed in the newsletter on a weekly basis. So check that out. And I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.